that's one of the best things that I like about this church is how the, the greeting time is like a real greeting time. I mean, everybody's actually into it and enjoying each other's company and fellowship, something we'll talk about a little bit later. So, all right. Well, thank you guys uh, for being here. It's, it's an honor and privilege to be able to get up here again and, and present God's word. You know, when I was um, asked to do this here a couple of months back, I was kind of faced with whether I go with the the freedom slant or, you know, talk about freedom. And, but we've done that before. So I said, Scott, how about I just pick up with where you leave off and continue on in Ephesians? He said, great. I love that plan. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to be talking about uh, Ephesians five fifteen through 21. But first of all, I'd like to add my happy 4th of July greeting to everyone. Happy birthday, America. Um, and also thank you to all the veterans out there who have either served in the past or who are currently serving today. I'd like to give you my heartfelt thanks. As a, a current officer in the United States Air Force, been in the service for the last 13-ish years myself, I appreciate what you do, and I know the sacrifices that, uh, that you've made. We've been protecting freedom that our country declared some 242 years ago, so let's keep at it. Now, next to Christmas, Fourth of July is actually probably my personal favorite holiday, not only because I love my country, but also because of the fireworks. I love fireworks. Uh, and, and why? Well, as a teenager down in Hinton, Oklahoma, one of my first real entrepreneurial endeavors was building, stocking, and operating my own fireworks stand. Had a lot of fun in that stand, made a lot of money, and had a really good time popping fireworks uh, at the end of the, the selling season. In fact, that fireworks stand, I operated it right up until I married Rachel, and it actually paid for our honeymoon in Mexico. So I love fireworks on a whole lot of levels. Um, but also this midsummer season that we're in right now brings along something that I'm not such a big fan of, and you guys probably aren't either, and that is road construction. I don't know about you, but it seems like this time of year, everywhere I go, wherever I'm trying to get to, I run into those annoying orange and yellow signs, road work. It seems like during the summer months, more than any time, we see that. And if you've spent any time up in a northern tier state and a western tier state, mountainous areas, you know it's even worse out there. Like those places only have two seasons. There's snowy season and there's road work season. Just ask anybody who's from there and they'll tell you that's true. So maybe one of the most irritating signs of all is that detour ahead sign. You know, I have a confession to make about these detour signs. I tend to actually just drive around them and go check it out for myself and make sure that maybe it's just something in the road that I can kick it into four-wheel drive and go down in the ditch and get around. Uh, you know, sometimes that has worked out, but more often than not... I get to where the detour actually is, where the blockage in the road is, only to find out that there's a bridge that's just not there, or the road is actually totally impassable, or something of that nature. And in those instances, I get angry with myself, because then I spend a whole bunch more time driving back to where the sign was and taking the actual detour. So am I the only one that does that, or, okay, Dwight, you're with me. All right, I'm not the only one. Good. <laughs> now, today's passage kind of kind of parallels that. Now, similar to providing us with a detour sign that directs us to the safe road to drive on, Paul's passage today provides us with this big caution sign. He's giving us a detour for life and directing us towards the roads of good life choices while at the same time highlighting for us the broken way that will lead us over the brink. So bearing this in mind, let's open our Bibles to Ephesians 5, 
15 through 21 and read today's passage. Again, that's Ephesians 5, 15 through 21. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this opportunity that you've given us to gather here to open your word, Lord, to allow you to speak to us through it. Father, I pray that uh, as we look at these passages and these verses that, uh, that you penned through your Apostle Paul so many years ago, Lord, that they would, that they would come alive for us and that they would speak to us today. We know that, that your word is living. It is your actual word. And so as we, as we come here today and open our hearts and minds to what you have to say, I pray that you would speak to us, guide us, reveal things to us, Lord, and I pray that we would walk away from here knowing a little bit more about you, understanding you better, and loving you more, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so first, before we get into the the passage a little bit deeper, let's zoom out just a little bit and realize that this passage essentially provides kind of a central focal point for a much broader context that really starts in chapter 4 that we've already looked at. Uh, previously, and goes all the way to the end of chapter 6. Now, many theologians point to this particular portion of Scripture and call it the summary climax of chapters 4 through 6. It kind of summarizes these things right here in the middle of this this bigger passage. Uh, So right from the start, Paul places a really strong emphasis on the fact that we believers must take much care in the area that he is about to address with the words, Look carefully then how you walk. That's the caution sign for us. Look carefully then how you walk. The choices that he's about to lay out for us are personal ones that each and every one of us must deal with in our daily lives. And they will inevitably have a big impact on us in the future in big and real ways. So what we're going to see here is that Paul provides us with four contrasting courses. And that's in your notes if you're a note taker. The first half of the passage has four contrasting choices, and then the second half of the passage has four um, correct courses for Christian community. So realize that we're going we're gonna to break it down into those, those kind of two different sections. First, let's talk about the four contrasting courses. The first of the four contrasts is right here at the end of verse 15, where we're instructed to live not as unwise, but as wise. The contrast there is unwise versus wise. So Paul kind of lays out in the broadest of terms how we Christians ought to live, wise versus unwise. Now, this particular contrast is not a new idea at all. In fact, has its roots all the way back to Old Testament wisdom literature. If you you recall reading in Proverbs, there's a lot of stuff about wise versus unwise in there. In lots of the Old Testament literature, especially in the book of Proverbs, we see a lot of these types of contrasts. However, Here in Ephesians, we need to understand what the term wise means within the context of what Paul is referring to. So we need to take a little closer look at that term. Essentially, the way it's used here, it means to be 
one who can grasp the significance of the Lord's will and his plan of salvation and who in turn submits to that plan. So the wise person is one who can grasp the significance of the Lord's will and his plan for salvation and in turn submit himself to that plan. We can get to this sort of definition by uh, observing how the term wise is used elsewhere in this letter by looking at uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, uh, chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, chapter 3, verse 10, and then also a little later on in this very passage, we're going to look at verse 17. Now, this wisdom is sharply contrasted against one who has no desire for God, who does not seek to understand his plan for salvation at all. That would be the unwise person. This type of wisdom comes by way of a sound and ever-increasing knowledge of God's holy word. But it actually doesn't stop there, not just with knowledge of the word. Rather, it involves, in addition to this intellectual knowledge, a skill in living or an ethical walk. So in other words, you could say that to be wise, as Paul is here commanding, is to have an understanding of God's word that works itself out in actual practice. So to be wise is to have an understanding of God's word that works itself out in actual practice. That's the first contrast, wise versus unwise. The second contrast deals with how we choose to spend our time. Verse 16 states that we are to make the best use of the time. And some translations would say making the most of every opportunity. Now the contrast here is that the wise person will do just that. They will consider how they use their time and make the most of it to the glory of God versus the foolish or unwise person who pays no heed to how they use their limited days, hours, minutes, and seconds that God has granted them. So you can see he's kind of building from the wise, unwise, now the time, it it builds on itself. Uh, The Greek verb here is exagorazo, and it means making the most of every opportunity. And some translations translate that very literally. The ESV is a little bit different, but it it captures the same essence of that verb. So the implication here is that we Christians are to take an active, well, let let me back up a little bit. So that verb can also be translated to purchase, to buy back, or to redeem. So the implication is that we take an active and intentional role in doing good and seeking to redeem the time that we have here on earth. Now, Paul even gives us a reason as to why this is such an important issue when he says in verse 16, because the days are evil. You see, the days we live in rob us of precious time. We've all, we've all experienced it. You know, we have so many societal and cultural things vying for our attention, taking time away from us, and, and when we allow them to just rob us of time, be it social media, uh, materialistic pursuits, any number of other distractions that uh, will steal our time away from us, then we are not, we are, we are not guarding our time closely. We're, we're allowing the evil days to, to take our time away. And in fact, one of Satan's most successful tactics in causing Christians to be ineffective for kingdom work is to keep us distracted. Simply keep us distracted, and then we don't think about God, we don't think about the work that he has for us to do, and the time slips by. So the famous Great Awakening revivalist Jonathan Edwards had a great view on this issue. As one of 70 resolutions that he penned on his 20th birthday, Edwards wrote, and this is a quote from Edwards, he wrote this on his 20th birthday, he wrote 70 resolutions for himself. I wish I was that motivated at 20 years old to write 70 resolutions, but he said, 
in one of his resolutions, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can. Edwards was a wise man. So the third contrast, moving on, that we see is that of foolishness versus understanding God's will. He sets up this contrast of being foolish versus understanding God's will. In verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, again, Paul is continuing to build on the previous two ideas that he has introduced on this whole wise versus unwise uh, setup. How will a man redeem his time and not fall into folly? By seeking an ever deeper understanding of the Lord's will. He will delve into scripture. So this verse serves as a parallel expansion and a more general, to the more general contrast we found back in verse 15. He's expanding on that, how to be wise. You know, understand what the will of the Lord is. I really like uh, how John Stott summarizes this. And John Stott, he's a theologian, he says, His, God's general will, is found in scripture. The will of God for the people of God has been revealed in the word of God. But we shall not find his particular will in Scripture. To be sure, we shall find general principles in Scripture that guide us, but detailed decisions have to be made after careful thought and prayer and the seeking of advice from mature and experienced believers. Now, I really like Stott's summary on this whole idea of God's will for two reasons. First, he highlights the importance of studying and understanding God's word and allowing that to affect how we live. But then secondly, he places a very strong emphasis on the, necessary, on the necessity of believers to live in this real, deep, honest, personal, and prayerful coexistence with one another. This community or this fellowship with each other. He says that God's particular will for individuals is found that way. I think that's a really good, a really good summary of, of that idea of, of seeking and understanding God's will. Now, the fourth and final contrast in this passage is related to what we allow to control our minds and bodies. So the contrast that Paul sets up is that of being under the influence of worldly passions. He specifically uses alcohol. We'll talk about that. Versus being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So kind of worldly passions versus influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's several views on why Paul specifically uses drunkenness to set up this contrast against being spirit-filled. Um, some theologians say that Paul is directly refuting a trend that had possibly developed within the Ephesian-believing community of abusing the Lord's table and becoming drunk, because obviously they would use actual wine whenever they would partake of communion. And some would say that these people, the, the believers, were actually getting drunk at the communion table. Um, Others affirm that Paul is here prohibiting a continued participation in this pagan, mysterious cult called Dionysius. Dionysius was the god of wine in that day, that that Greek god. Uh, And in, in this Dionysius cult, participants would become excessively inebriated via orgies and parties and then kind of allow the god of wine to take over their bodies and basically they would just be drunk and they would attribute their behaviors to whatever the god of wine wanted them to do. And this was a very prominent 
prominent cult back in that day. So some theologians say he's, he's sort of refuting that as a, a way to live. But it really, a lot of folks land kind of on a more moderate position, and I agree with this. It seems more reasonable, based on what he's already contrasted for us, that Paul is simply setting up this drunk and debaucherous lifestyle of the sinful man against the spirit-filled life of the true believer. Because Paul uses drunkenness as an example in many other writings. He uses it as a way of epitomizing the ways of darkness and worldly passion. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 7 contains similar verbiage. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6 through 7, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. Again, using that drunk uh, analogy there. Then again, in Romans 13, 12 through 13, he says, The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So again, he sets up this orgies and drunkenness contrast versus walking properly as in the daytime. And that was Romans 13, 12 through 13. So it seems that Paul is painting a picture that uses drunkenness and its tendency to fill a person with sexual excess, debauchery, and reckless deeds as lying at the center of this unwise lifestyle. And this sharply contrasts with the spirit-filled believer. The drunkard lives under the influence of his alcohol and the worldly passions that come with that. But Christians, on the other hand, are commanded to live under the influence of God, the Holy Spirit. It is this positive side of the contrast that Paul grammatically places the emphasis. He's placing the emphasis now grammatically on be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word here is fill, for filled is pleroo, which predominantly refers to exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in a life that is under the lordship of the Spirit. So let me say that again. The pleroo word refers to this exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in a life that is under the lordship of the Spirit. We talk about fruit of the Spirit. We have spent several Sundays talking about the fruit of the Spirit. So let those things that you heard Scott preach on the last several months kind of come to mind when you, when you hear this word filled. What does that mean? Being filled with the Holy Spirit is Paul's special concern for us in this last half of verse 18, and it sets the stage for the next section of the passage that we're going to talk about next. That's the four correct courses for Christian community. Um, so, the four correct courses for Christian community that Paul lays out for us here. It's not, this is, realize this is not an expansive list, right? This is not, if we just do these things, we'll be good. This is what he's focusing on specifically in this passage. There's, there's more out there, but in this passage, we're going to look at fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission. So he's going to talk about fellowship, worship, gratitude, and submission. Well, verses uh, 15 through 18 kind of point out some of those dangerous courses that we as believers can take that will lead to very poor life choices. This last half of our passage is purely positive in its directives, in what it is commanding us to do. And like we said, the pivotal point in all of this is that last half of verse 18, where Paul's imperative is that we believers be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
being filled with the Holy Spirit will enable us to do these things that he's going to, to command us. With this infilling of God, the Holy Spirit, Christians can, in fact, lead lives of fellowship together that exemplify what Paul is going to lay out for us. So let's read the second half of the passage again. It says, starting at the end of verse, uh, verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the first directive that we come to is that we address or speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. This command really shows the importance of that horizontal relationship that we have in communal worship with other believers. It's our fellowship together. While it mainly focuses on this Christian interaction within the context of corporate worship like we are doing here today, it actually has broader implications as well. When he says that we are to address or speak to one another, he clearly has intelligible communication in mind, right? So not meditation, not unknown speech or glossolalia, babble, anything like that. He's talking about intelligible communication with one another. Now, a parallel contrast, or sorry, a parallel passage to this one is found in Colossians 3.16. So let's read Colossians 3.16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, in this sense, uh, Paul is instructing us to sing with a purpose. That purpose, at least as far as the horizontal component is concerned, revolves around developing a better working knowledge of the Word of God. Not only in our personal lives, but in our corporate lives. And that's the emphasis of the songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. That, because as we saw in, in Colossians there, um, yeah, in Colossians 3, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Then he rolls right into the idea of singing as, as, as it piles on top of that. Um, so while this verbiage here in Ephesians is a little bit different than what we read in, in Colossians, it's essentially, the meaning is essentially the same. The two verses are parallel. So Paul isn't really saying here in Ephesians that we need to walk around together singing constantly as if living out some kind of ongoing, nonstop musical production, although I will say that my wife would actually love that type of lifestyle if we were just constantly singing to one another all the time because <laughs> we like musicals. But that's not what Paul is getting at when he says to sing uh, to one another psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. He's saying, rather, that our corporate music is important, and it should have purpose behind it. The fact that he lists three separate forms of music, the psalms, the hymns, and the spiritual songs, really describes this full range of singing that the Spirit prompts. Now, through these songs, members of the community who are continually filled by the Spirit will instruct, edify, and exhort one another. Like it or not, to a large degree, our theology is shaped by the songs that we sing here at church. The more we sing certain songs, the more we start to believe the words that those songs contain. What we sing, we eventually believe in our hearts as truth. Now, Paul knows that this is true and is giving us some direction for our music. How should our music play out? Now, the second directive deals with our, our worship, vertical, vertical worship to God. And we'll talk about that. So the first was, was our fellowship. Second directive is our worship. It says that we are to sing and make melody in the, to the Lord in our hearts 
what is he talking about here? Well, this passage has been interpreted by some to refer to this type of mystical, spirit-driven prayer, personal prayer language, and, and that is not, in fact, what Paul is referring to here at all. The second imperative actually can be paired grammatically with the first in action. So the first one was fellowship, singing together. This second one, to make melody in your heart to God, can be paired with that first one in action. However, the direction of it changes. So similar in action, different in direction. Direct in, direction on the first one was corporate, horizontal, other believers. Act, direction on this one is vertical to God. The phrase, with your heart, signifies the whole of one's being. So it's the whole of one's being. So really what he's saying is the expected outflow for us as spirit-filled believers is that as part of our worship, we will express our gratitude towards our creator in melodic and musical songs as we are outwardly able to do so. And we are to do that with all of our being. And that's what we were doing this morning. That's what we do when we gather here and we have our our time of music. It's not that it's just the contemporary popular thing to do. It's that it's actually instructed in the Word of God. So it's good to sing. Even if you have a terrible voice like me, sing anyway. God likes it. Now, the third instruction that we receive is related to gratitude. We're commanded to possess this general spirit of gratitude and thanksgiving towards God for everything he has done and what he continues to do for us in Christ. This thankful attitude is something that should really define and differentiate us as Christians from the rest of the world. We're directed to this lifestyle of thanks to God. But notice how he says we are to do it. He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why doesn't Paul just say, be thankful to God? Just be thankful to God. He actually says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is interesting, because by instructing us to do so, to be thankful and have gratitude in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is making this pointed reminder to us as to where our hope and our joy ultimately stem from, namely, the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's gospel wrapped up in this. It's in his name and upon his redemptive authority that we as believers can be spirit-filled in such a way as to be even capable of living out these imperatives that Paul has given us. Now, interestingly enough, this is the only place in all of Scripture where we see that we are instructed to give thanks specifically in the name of Jesus. So that's kind of an interesting thing about this. And additionally, there, that kind of segues into this, this next discussion, that there's really strong Trinitarian focus here. So we are fi- based on the, the words that we read in this passage, we are filled by God the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live the lives we are directed to by God the Father, all of which is made possible through the work of God the Son in whose name we are to give thanks. I'm going to read that one more time because it's, kind of it's kind of confusing at first. We are filled by God the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live the lives we are directed to by God the Father, all of which is made possible through the work of God the Son in whose name we are to give thanks. Just Do you see the Trinitarian uh, implications wrapped up in that? All three persons of the Godhead are being referenced here by Paul. It, it's, it's, really, it's really neat, I think. So the fourth and final directive, moving on, that we're given here deals with submission, the area of submission. Paul instructs that in order for us to live and work together correctly in Christian community, we are to be submissive to one another 
within the context of divinely ordered relationships. Now, this is actually a very crucial passage, and it's important that we reach a proper and true understanding of verse 21. Because correct or incorrect exegesis of this particular verse has very profound implications leading into verse 22, where Paul begins to talk about headship in the home and things like that. Uh, I won't be covering that. Scott will be covering that next week. But now this verse 21 reads, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's all it says. So how do we, how do we interpret that? Now, some would claim that Paul is here calling for this purely mutual submission of believers one to, one, one to another with little or no regard for order of structure, order or structure. You know, some would say he's saying just be submissive to one another. Don't worry about order, structure, just be submissive one to another and things will work out. However, the problem is this view does not adequately treat either the root verb of the passage or the rest of the biblical record where we see that God is indeed a God of order. He is a God of structure. It seems like they'd be in, in, uh, in conflict with one another. However, when you look at the root verb here, that the word that we get submit from, it literally means to arrange under. Now, I'm going to quote Bible scholar Peter O'Brien because he speaks very insightfully into this, this definition of the word submit. He says, this term regularly functioned to describe the submission of someone in an ordered array to another person who was above the first in some way. For example, the submission of soldiers in an army to those of superior rank. The term appears some 23 times in the Pauline corpus and has everything to do with order. So to say that this term submit is ignoring a sense of order is simply not to treat the term properly. Uh, while it generally carries with it, however, this strong overtone of subjection and subordination, in this particular passage where we find this term submit in, in Ephesians, Paul is actually using the middle voice. And he's doing so in order to signify a voluntary submission. Okay? So what he's doing here is he's highlighting the self-sacrificing, loving service that must characterize the Christian community. He's not at all doing away with God-ordained order and structure supported elsewhere in the pages of Scripture. So in essence, we are to submit to one another within the context of Christian community, the church, all of us, and in accordance with the ordered structure that God intends. But this must all be done out of reverence for Christ. Now the word reverence here actually is the same word that is translated to fear in most other places of Scripture where it says fear the Lord, uh, fear, the, the, the idea of fearing God. It's the same word, but here some translations have translated it to, say, revere or reverence. But the idea is that we believers are to possess a certain element of fear of Christ. And this motif is nothing new. We, we see that all throughout Scripture. But interestingly enough, this is, again, the only place in the New Testament where we, where we are specifically instructed to fear God the Son. Usually that fear is directed at God the Father. But here, that same word is used for how we are to respond to God the Son. But in light of Christ's power, and with a healthy fear of his status as our prophet, priest, and king, we are to submit to one another as part of God's perfectly ordered plan that's laid out for us in Scripture. Now, so if you kind of think about all that discussion that we just had about submission... Bearing all that in mind, we can see how vital it is to our views on egalitarianism versus complementarianism, 
headship in the home, structure in the church. All those, all those things are affected by how we interpret this passage because it segues right into verse 22. It does set the stage and kind of springboards into that next passage. But if we are to properly contextualize verse 21, it is as though the apostle is saying, submit to one another, and what I mean is, wives, submit to your husbands, children to your parents, slaves to your masters. And you guys probably know a lot of people who have arrived at a very different interpretation of that. Uh, These are all ideas that will be thoroughly explored later in coming weeks, but fortunately for me, that is Scott's work and not mine. (laughs) I just get to set it up for him. All right, now in conclusion, let's, uh, let's put all this together. So Paul has placed this very large caution sign in front of us here in Ephesians 15 through 21. We are instructed to look carefully and exercise great caution in how we choose to live our Christian lives. He's pointed out very clearly where the dangerous roads are that lead to pitfalls and disaster. And he's at the same time provided us with these detours that show us the correct way we should go as a Christian community. Finally, he's showing us the best way forward as we live together as believers in the church. Now, the choice is ours. Will we pursue wisdom? Will we cast off folly? Will we make the best use of our time to the glory of God? Will we continually strive to deepen our understanding of God's will? Will we refuse to be controlled by our flesh and instead submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit's lordship? Will we engage wholeheartedly with all of our beings in praising and worshiping our Lord both corporately and individually? Will we live lifestyles of gratitude and thanksgiving towards our Heavenly Father as a result of what the Son has accomplished? Will we submit ourselves to the orders and structures laid out in Scripture and so revere our Redeemer? The choice is ours. If you're here today and you have never consciously submitted to that Lordship of Christ, you've never invited him into your life, you've never said, yes, I understand the gospel, I want to follow Jesus. If you've never reached that point and you hear or feel Christ calling you today, then you need to do something about that. So I would encourage you to please come and see myself or one of the elders after the service, and we'd love to pray with you, give you some good, some good passages, uh, get you set on the, on the correct road. Please come and see us after the service if, if that's you. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time you've given us to spend in your word. God, I thank you so much for this passage in particular that, uh, that provides so much rich instruction for us. God, I pray that as we, as we go out of here later today, God, that, that you will bring these things to mind and that we will make the wise choices, that you will empower us with your spirit to be able to pursue these things that, that your servant Paul has laid out for us to do, God. I pray that uh, you will just keep us mindful of these things, and as we face these choices day in and day out, God, that you will help us, that you will empower us, that you will enable us to be able to make the good choices and to follow you, Lord. We thank you so much for the fact that that we actually can do these things because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, Lord, and because of the, the infilling power of your Holy Spirit, God, and it's in Christ's name we pray these things.